Welcome to Working History, produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Carrie Lee Merritt, author of Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South, and Matthew Hild, author of Greenbackers, Knights of Labor, and Populace, Farmer Labor Insurgency in the Late 19th Century South. Today we're discussing their co-edited book, Reconsidering Southern Labor History, Race, Class, and Power, published by the University of Florida Press. Carrie Lee Merritt and Matt Hild, welcome to Working History. Thanks so much for having us on, Beth. Likewise. Great. The title of your new book is Reconsidering Southern History. And I wanted to start out with sort of a a broad question, but why reconsidering? What does that term um, mean in the context of this book? Well, we had toyed with the title for a while. We had considered several things, including reviving Southern labor history. Uh Um, Basically, what we wanted to to bring up is kind of that there's been a general decline in labor history, um, specifically in the... 1980s and 1990s, um, particularly with the rise of um, big businesses getting involved with universities, labor departments have basically been gutted. Mm-hmm. Entire departments that used to actually even trade, uh, used to actually train labor unionists, have been gutted and gotten rid of in many cases. Um, and we also wanted to point out the fact that labor history actually is still being um, done and discussed and studied, but it's actually usually shepherded under another name. It could be, you know, under African-American history, um, gender history. So it's, it's gone into these other departments to a great extent. Um, but we wanted to kind of recenter the emphasis on labor itself. Mm-hmm. The subtitle then, if we sort of keep <laughs> sort of keep going on this theme of the, uh, of the title of the book, is Race, Class, and Power. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little about the nexus of these three things, of race, class, and power you know, and sort of how they function as a, as a broad framework for, um, for what you address in the book. Well, I think that if you're looking at labor history, those three issues, race, class, and power, are all inexorably part of the story, right? I mean, there's really no way to consider labor history without those things. And I guess also to get back to the whole idea of reconsidering, I mean, think about what that word means. It means to look at something from a different point of view or at more of a distance and hopefully these essays kind of do that, you know, for the most part, they're not that old institutional labor history. Not that that doesn't have its place, but I think almost all of the essays, I mean, race, certainly most of the chapters in the book deal with the theme of exploited workers of color. I mean, exploited white workers too, but certainly almost all of the essays deal to some extent or another with exploitation workers of color and class and power. You know, that, that's so inexorably linked to labor history. You know, I don't see how you get, get around it. So hopefully that subtitle sort of explains the common themes of most of the essays. And, and how does placing these things at the center of attention sort of reframe our understanding then of Southern labor history, you know, sort of getting beyond um, what you just said about, you know, sort of shifting the, the focus away from sort of institutions, right, as the nexus of uh, or sort of the, the space around which labor history is understood. What, what does race, race, class and power do in terms of, you know, getting our attention in, in a different way? I think for a long time, the South has been overlooked in labor studies in a lot of ways. You know, even though um, the actual labor practices themselves are studied, they're not called that, Mm -hmm. um, probably due to the fact that there's not much unionism 
in the South. There hasn't traditionally been a lot of labor unions. And so we're left out of the national discussion a lot of times. But um, one of the things we argue in our introduction is that what we see happening and what anybody who studies Southern labor history really sees happening is that the kind of um, clampdown on labor that, that the South has kind of perfected by now, not only turning black and white workers against each other and workers of color against poor white workers, but also um, just using uh, institutions and legal apparatus to, um, you know, the right to work laws basically originated in the South. And, and we argue that what's happened that instead of the South actually progressing to levels of, you know, the rest of the nation, what's actually happened is the rest of the nation has kind of regressed mm -hmm. to the point of the South. And the book in is really quite expansive in scope, both in terms of time period, you, the, the chapters, the, the contributions to the book span from the early republic to more modern times. But then it's also quite expansive in terms of the geographic area considered. I mean, you know, the South is really, you know, this vast region. And there are chapters that cover everything from West Virginia to Texas. So uh, I'm hoping that we could talk of, or, or you could provide our listeners with um, some examples of chapters to give us a, a better sense of some of the content of the book. Um, and how labor history is being addressed by really what is a new generation of scholars who are who are contributing to this volume. Well, I think in part the whole notion of unfree labor is really one of the themes that pops up in this book in a variety right. of chapters. And certainly in section one, the early republic in the Old South, the first essay by Thomas Brown looking at the colonial and revolutionary or just after the Revolutionary War era, Charleston Mechanics Society really hits upon that kind of the the white workers who are sort of being squeezed out by slave labor. And the second essay by Chris Nobrassel Colfin really deals with policing as a means of controlling black labor. The third chapter by Brett Durbis deals with prison labor. So essentially, and that, those three chapters kind of set things that seem to reverberate through the whole book. I mean, even from the late 18th century to the early 21st century, these themes of unfree labor and how they're tied with race and class and power, but race most visibly well, I think, I think that's a, at least a shift, not a total departure, but a shift away from what, what a lot of labor history looked at. You know, even kind of the era in the 1980s and 90s, you had all these people like David Carlton and Doug Flanning writing about Southern mill workers. They're mostly writing about, or fat matter, like a family. They're writing about white mill workers and kind of their relationship within the mill community. And you know, I think the, the, the pendulum has kind of swung the other way now. I think the essays in this book are really taking a much broader view of, of Southern labor history than what was being done in the 80s and 90s. We also tried to make this volume very interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. um, we have uh, a couple of sociologists, a political scientist, um, you know, some American studies people. And we wanted to try to show that, you know, probably what's going to be ho hopefully come to be known as the third wave of labor history, um, if we can really get all of this going, mm -hmm. uh, hopefully, um, that it's going to have to really start drawing on the social sciences and even environmental sciences and, and the hard sciences. Um, you know, Aaron um, Conlon has a great essay on pesticide use in, in um, 
in Florida and how that has really negatively impacted not only the health, but, you know, actually caused deaths of so many African-American and Latino workers in Florida. And so I think that in order to do history really well, um, we need to bring in all, you know, every aspect um, of these workers' lives, including, you know, what is their health like? You know, what, what are what they're exposed to on the job? What does it do to their bodies? What does it do to their brains? What does it do to their life expectancy? What are some of the commonalities that you see across time and place, given the, the you know, the very broad scope of of the book? Um, how does this help us to uh, first of all, you know, are there you know, what are the commonalities that you that you teased out? And then how does this help us to better understand the South and the history of of labor in the region? I think one of the main commonalities is that we typically tend to see labor in the South as being very divided by race. And Mm -hmm. that's just not really the case. Um, In reality, there are many chances throughout Southern history where there was a, you know, nascent coalition of working class people uh, across racial lines. And we see time and time again, um, where upper class white elites come in and crush that out and and really work to engender racism and, and divide labor by race in order to help engender racism and keep black and white workers apart. Mm-hmm. Any other big themes that you saw coming out of this, you know, this study that's huge in times in, in terms of, of uh, scope of time and place? I think it, some of the essays, at least, certainly show this kind of concerned notion on the part of, I, I guess, to say capitalists is almost you know, a bit too of much of an easy catch-all term, but certainly kind of the class dynamic between employers and employees. I mean, sometimes it's not really capitalists because they're prison laborers, but nevertheless, this kind of these shifting ways in which employers really pull out all the stops to keep exploited laborers from ever really gang up the bat, so to speak. And one of the essays by De- is by Deborah Beckham. She do- talks about something Kira Leaves was talking about, how in North Carolina in the 1890s, the Knights of Labor and the populace really are about to put together this biracial coalition that's not going to just affect the workplace. It's really going to take over politics in many ways, you know, mm-hmm. throw, the Bourbon Demo- throw out the Bourbon Democrats. And she really focuses a lot. It's interesting, too, because you usually think of labor, you think more of you know, even the South, textile workers mm-hmm. and coal miners. Mm-hmm. She really looks at farm workers, and it's really... The gist of what she's looking at are black and white farm workers in East North Carolina really engaging in you know, going to incredible lengths to really try to overcome Jim Crow and unite and on the grassroots level achieving it pretty effectively. And what what ruins it, what kills it is not racism or even employers stirring up racism among the workers. It's more Democrats pulling out every political trick of disfranchisement and mob violence. And of course, in North, North Carolina, I think a lot of people know the the Wilmington story, 1898, just kind of how it all ends in North Carolina. But well, just really showed... let, let's pause just for a minute in case they don't. Could you could you just give a sort of a cliff notes version of that? Yeah, sure. In, in 18, by 1898, Republicans and populists had actually been they took over the state government. 1894 held at 96 had a Republican governor elected with populist and, and black support, and really had thrown the Bourbons out of power. Had enacted fair voting laws, fair credit laws, fair tenant farms and sharecroppers. And 1898, that all really comes to a crashing halt by this vicious Democrat white supremacy campaign. There's actually an open massacre in, in Wilmington of, of blacks, blacks and whites office holders or political leaders. And her essay really shows, Deborah Beckles' essay really shows there was you know, a good four, even really six years of a grassroots movement that you know, it wasn't white workers refusing to, to join with black workers or black workers refusing to join with white workers. It was really 
the, the threatened Democratic Party pulling out all the stops and going to, you know, stopping at nothing to destroy it. And, and kind of going along with that, I think another main theme is is kind of the issue of unionism and mm-hmm. that we tend to think of Southern laborers as backwards or, or um, you know, voting against their own interests when they're not voting for unions. And several of the essays in this collection um, from Dana Kaldemeyer's essay in the late uh, on coal miners in the late 1890s um, up to one of the most recent essays by David Anderson and Andrew McKevitt on Southern workers in foreign-owned auto factories. Mm-hmm. It shows that that these workers are smart people. You know, they know mm-hmm. what's in their best interest. It's not, um, you know, antithetical to their being that they're, they're choosing very logically reasons why they don't want to join a union. Mm-hmm. You know, just to get back to something, Carrie Lee, that you had mentioned um, a little bit ago, this idea of a third wave of labor history. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to see sort of, what each of you are, you know, collectively sort of, you know, two heads working together on this volume sort of see as the sort of the future of of the field, right? Which in a lot of ways, I think this book kind of opens up a discussion about. Um, you had mentioned, Carrie Lee, one aspect of that is sort of the interdisciplinarity of it. Um, but what, you know, what are some of those other pieces that you see falling into place as we, um, you know, continue that shift of understanding you know, workers and labor and what makes for labor history away from, you know, white workers, industry, institutions and towards something different? Well, I think hopefully one thing that comes out of the book is this very notion that really, I mean, I guess this isn't entirely new, but, you know, the pendulum again kind of swings back and forth as different generations of historians and scholars come along. But I think really the book shows there needs to be a lot more emphasis on overall social history then perhaps what people think about as typical labor history, you know, Carrie mentioned Aaron Collins' essay about African-American and Latino farm workers in Florida, and uh, that story is not really kind of, you know, shop floor, what that even means on a farm anyway, but right. a lot of it, you know, but again, the South, the biggest shop floor in the South has always been the farm, right? If right. You think about it. Sure. But, but certainly, you know, if, to understand a story that Aaron Collins writes about, it's not so much, and part of it is what's going on in the workplace, of course, but it's really the overall effect that the situation has in their lives, the, you know, the kind of difficulties of, of raising a family, the difficulty of having a kind of independence as citizens, let alone as workers. And I, I think in kind of the situation we're now in 2018, the idea that you can separate wor- working class issues from political issues is, you know, myopic at best, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I think, I think a big key part of all of this is that, um, yeah, the timing is absolutely right to tie labor history to activism. And, you know, probably not all the people in this book, but a decent percentage of them probably consider themselves activists, scholar activists. And, um, you know, when you think of the second wave, the, the, the new labor history, it came out in the, ni- in the 1960s, you know, not in a vacuum, but hand in hand with the civil rights movement, with um, the women's rights movement, with all of these um, big social movements. And it really, uh, you know, Labor historians at that time made themselves relevant to the national conversation, made themselves relevant to policy conversations. Um, and I want to, I hopefully, you know, the movement will will move on in that way. And, and historians can once again really make themselves, you know, indispensable to a discussion on 
um, you know, when the current administration hopefully finally comes to an end, um, we'll have some some momentum again to swing that pendulum back. And when we do, I think historians really need to uh, jump in at the policy level and help decide um, where to take things, how to shape the, the nation, the laws to make things uh, much fairer, much more, uh, a much more equitable society for all of the American workers, you know, all of the common laborers in this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that maybe is a good segue to um, sort of a, a, a last big, but uh, a last question that, you know, what, what do you see as the key takeaways then from this book? in specific or general terms, in addition to, you know, kind of kick, re-kickstarting or kickstarting, I guess I should say, this, um, you know, this conversation around the place of working people in the nation's um, discourse. What what else do you see as, as sort of a, you know, something that you really want readers to to walk away from this book understanding? I think certainly globalization, I mean, that's something that labor historians writing about the you know, 1920s, 1930s mill workers didn't have to worry about so much. But Certainly one of the last essays in the book by Dave Anderson and Drew McKevitt on Southern workers in foreign-owned oil factories is the most prime example. But certainly, Justin, you know, aside from what scholars have written about, in the reality of the working lives and economic lives of most Americans for the last 30 years at least, right, globalization has really become more and more of an issue. And so I think for, for labor historians or scholars of any kind, that global context really has to be more you know, on your mind, more mm-hmm. something you're aware of. Mm-hmm. I mean – because essentially, you really can't understand what's happened to American workers or Southern workers, which without being you know, too much too general about, I think most the general consensus is that there's been a real decline in the, the middle class in the United States and you know, certainly the South as well in the last 30 years or so. And to try to reduce that entirely to political issues, racial issues going on in America, I'm certain that's a part of it. But I think, you know, as, as we're seeing all the time in the news now, the globalization is certainly a big factor. And it's really kind of something that not too many historians have really, not too many labor historians have really delved into yet. So I think that the essay by Dave Harris and Drew McKevitt is really, you know, the most prominent of several that really kind of point the way forward in that respect. And we were lucky enough to get Bethany Morton to actually write the epilogue to this book. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's just fantastic. And it really does go into, you know, what's the future of work look like in the right. South mm-hmm. and in the nation? Mm-hmm. And the reality is, as technology progresses um, with globalization, uh, American workers need to work less. We all need to work less. But in order for that to happen, we're going to have to have huge, you know, institutional changes on the, on the federal level. Um, you know, whether it's a universal basic income, federal jobs, guarantee these things together, we're going to have to really, really take some time and rethink how society is structured at a very basic level um, in order for us not to just devolve into a nation um, of a very extremely wealthy 1% and everyone else just living in abject poverty. Starting way back at the, you know, the early days of the nation to to where we are today, covering some really, you know, still important and, and, and starting a conversation about where, you know, where do we go from here? So that's really fascinating. Either of you, before we wrap up, have um, any forthcoming projects that you're working on that you want to flag for us to keep a lookout for? Well, Matt's going to have to tell you, he he is unbelievable how many books he has had come out this year. So he's going to okay. have to give you a rundown of that. Yeah, first. that would go be ahead. great. Okay, go ahead, Matt. Well, what I've got coming out is probably only even just to about 2% of the listeners, if even, but it's a, a picture, pictorial history of Georgia Tech, kind of pictures, one of those Arcadia books of, you know, essays and oh, photographs sure. and uh-huh. captions, you uh-huh. know, always real like popular sort of, you know, pop history souvenir type things. 
So I did one of those on Georgia Tech with my friend David Morton, and I've just got a book coming out like in two weeks on the University of Missouri Press about, well, the full title is Arkansas's Gilded Age, The Rise, Decline, and Legacy of Populism and Working Class Protests. So basically, it's kind of about that 1880s to about World War One era, mm-hmm. and I think kind of surprising. A lot of people think of Arkansas as a sort of, you know, kind of middle nowhere place where nothing ever happened, but... In fact, that's ironic because Arkansas, you know, later on became one of the most ardent right-to-work states and right and home of Walmart and union busting. And in fact, one of our essays by Adam Carson deals all about that, about how in the 1960s, Arkansas starts down this really hard right path. So what I'm really trying to show is that it used to be kind of south meets west liberal, you know, small p populist socialist place. And the legacy of it really lived on well into the 20th century. I kind of try to link what goes on in the Gilded Age, what goes on in the STFU in the 1930s, what goes on in the Civil Rights Movement in Little Rock in the 1950s. So that's that's the point of the book. Anyway, we'll, we'll see how I actually carried it off, but that, that was the intent. Okay, great. Maybe you could come back and talk just about that book at some point with us, too. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Okay, great. And I'm, I'm currently um, actually spending a lot of time starting to get into some more activism and um, just recently met with some leaders from the poor people's campaign and, uh-huh. and trying to start figure out how, how I, how to meld, you know, the world of scholar activists with um, the people on the front lines and try to work out some of those um, issues. But I, I've been researching off and on, and we'll get back to it soon, um, two book length projects. One, on the early years of reconstruction and how um, just radical it was for for many black people, especially in in high percentage black areas like coastal Georgia, coastal Carolina, mm-hmm. um, they were they were real hotbeds of black radicalism. In some ways, um, I even refer to it as a, a you know type of black power movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like that story hasn't been told enough. Um, and then the other book is actually the same era, but it shows the rise of the birth really of the professional uniform police force in the South, which of course, of course occurs literally right after emancipation, mm-hmm. um, within a few years after emancipation in the deep South, almost every single locality, every single town, um, has a professional police force, which as I argue is of course there to, you know, put, put free people back into a form of slavery. Okay, well, good luck with those projects. And uh, Matt, good luck with your new books that are out. Um, And thank you both, Carrie Lee Merritt and Matt Hild, uh, for joining us on this episode of Working History. Thanks so much, Beth. All right, my pleasure. Thanks again to Carrie Lee Merritt and Matt Hild for joining us today to discuss their most recent book, Reconsidering Southern Labor History, Race, Class, and Power. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. 